We're glad you're joining us here at Common Thread Online. This is a recording of our community gathering as we do each week to think together about the spiritual journey. At the end of the lesson, we open the floor for discussion, but we'd love to hear what you're thinking as well. On our website are directions to download our app. Once you have it, join the group. What are you thinking? We'd love to connect with you there. There's a form of managing projects that speaks to the way the spiritual journey unfolds. Uh, it is the iterative approach. When we're writing a piece of software, we don't do it all at once and then bang, we're done forever. We have version 1.0, then we have not 2, but 1.1 and 1.2 and 1.3, 1.3a, 1.3b. In very small increments, we begin to roll out change. And that's actually how our souls change. They roll out uh, very small incremental changes that accumulate substantially over time. Well, I say that because this practice, examine of consciousness, has been one of the ways that I can mark these processes, these stages of growth uh, in my life pretty clearly. So um, I don't do examine uh, ongoingly like I do mindfulness meditation or centering prayer. I do it in uh, seasons. So I will spend a month or maybe six weeks doing uh, a practice every night. Uh, and I've got some tools that I take along with me. I always create a bullet point of my day. So I bring my phone so I can look at my calendar because there's a very good chance if you had breakfast this morning, you can't remember what you had. <laughs> Especially if it was seven o'clock at night when you were sitting down to do this. So I bring my calendar and I just create a bullet point because of the very act of writing it out gives me time to reflect and think about and remember what I did. But the other tool that I bring along is I have a laminated sheet with just a list of 27 virtues on it. Because when we ask the question, where were you in sync with the divine? Where were you not in sync with the divine? In many ways, that's a question of where did you practice virtue or where did you fail to practice virtue? I'm writing a series of short videos for our children's leaders right now, which I've decided to rewrite so that I can give it to our parents as well. How we talk about X, how we talk about God, how we talk about the Bible, how we talk about Jesus, how we talk about the things, what are the things that we put in our curriculum. And one of the things that I say at the very beginning is we've got a thing, 60-20-20. 60% of our curriculum is about the virtues. Uh, 20% is about felt needs, like kids really need to be thinking about bullying, be thinking about um, you know, screen time, that kind of stuff. And then the other 20% is about the things that inform a religious worldview. How, how do you imagine God? How do you think about these things? Well, the reason uh, virtue gets the lion's share is because when you stand back from the spiritual journey far enough, you realize that's the ending point of the spiritual journey. When we have done this journey, we stop doing love, we stop doing patience, and we stop doing kindness, and by then we have become love, and we have become kindness, and we have become patience. There is this interior transformation that goes on, recognizable by when we get there, we have become virtue. So it is the end of the spiritual journey. So we try and make it the beginning of the spiritual journey as well. So when we are teaching our children, we're teaching them about doing love and doing patience and doing kindness. They have not yet become it, but our prayer is that over a lifetime they will emerge into this becoming process. 
So when I'm doing the exam and practice and I've got this laminated bookmark full of the virtues that I read down, I will just look at my list from the day and I will look at this list of virtues and I will just give myself space and time to reflect. When was I in sync with the divine? When was I in sync with virtue? When was I not? And I have found that uh, those have become very productive times and um, over time, I watched this iterative process of change just unfold uh, very, very slowly, but very, very surely. So, this is our focus this month, examine of consciousness or the prayer of examine. I hope that you will make that part of your practice. But that's just a freebie. That wasn't even in the lesson. All right. The lesson today is... Um, on being better than other people. <laughs> I am so glad you were laughing. Because when I sent that out in the email this week, I thought, what if somebody takes me seriously? <laughs> so you did not. Thank you very much. You are all culturally informed enough to know who the church lady is on Saturday Night Live. So you recognize there is some tongue in some cheek here. <laughs> So, but before we get to the lesson, I want to give a little bit of extended time on housekeeping today. Um, <clears throat> we, in common thread, probably along with every other church in town, but also along with One Wake, are in the time of year when we gear up for the fall and into the following year. So there's a lot to report today, and I'm just going to highlight a few of the things. To highlight them effectively, it would be really helpful if you were looking at the housekeeping form. Uh, you, there's not a commitment to do anything, but if you can either QR code or go to our app on the front page and click the one that says clipboard, or if you want to do the hard way, go to uh, our website slash clipboard. And then if you get there, you'll be able to see the things that I'm talking about, because here's what happened this week. Um, by the way, all of those click boxes today, none of them are committed to doing click boxes. They are all, you're going to get some information about click boxes. So you will find out more if you click on those boxes. So um, <clears throat> here's what happened this week. We, Common Thread, we showed up in strength to the internal assembly this week where we heard what the research teams have proposed for us to focus on this fall. Now, only a few of the research, research teams have formed, so there's, we still need to hear from the mental health uh, and the homelessness working team, and the, uh, there's one other one, you, I'll, I'll remember it later. So we, they have been working on winnable issues that can happen this fall. Uh, and so this week, we, or this last week, we addressed two of our three primary concerns, affordable housing and public transportation. Now, what you're going to hear that I'm going to highlight are mostly local campaigns and probably in an area that you don't live in. Um, but it's, they're really important if you live in Cary, and they're really important if you live in Zebulon or Wendell. So here are some of the highlights, and you can follow along in the checkboxes. One Wake is going to show up in numbers on September 18th. We, are, we plan to turn out 350 people at a a city or town council candidate forum that we, One Wake, are hosting. Uh, 
The congregations within Cary are all committed to bring large numbers, like 30 per congregation. People outside of Cary, us, are committed to bringing three to five. So we want to be there because three to five times 50 congregations is still quite a few people. So with the room packed, which we've done many, many times, we're going to be asking for commitments for candidates, uh, from the candidates for town council for three things. To help the folks in Chatham County who are being displaced because of growth, to continue uh, Carrie's affordable housing budget line item into the next year's budget, and to assure that when Carrie sells uh, public property, which they're planning to do this coming year, that a percentage of that property will go to affordable housing. So. It's kind of a fun process to watch. If you would like to see it, I'd encourage you to go. These, these uh, meetings are kind of amazing when you watch actual change being happened because here's what po politicians and candidates for politicians tend to do. They tend to count well. So if we've got 350 people in the room, I've never seen one say no. <laughs> now, the second one is that you'll see is uh, public transport out in the Zebulon Wendell area. And the reason for that is as gentrification is happening here in town, lots and lots of folks are moving out. But when they get out there, there is really poor public transport uh, systems. So having a hard time getting to work. So we are going to need 125 people at that uh, meeting because that's what the room will hold. And that's going to be on October 17th. And we're going to be speaking to the Zebulon Town Commissioners and the uh, Wake County uh, Commissioners to reallocate some of the unused light rail money and put it toward reliable bus services. So same thing, the churches in Zambia bring quite a few. We're going to bring three to five. Also, you'll see on the checklist for four hours uh, a month, you could be part of a working group. To the working groups organize together what all of us do when we show up to these things. So there's a working group forming f to assist families who can't meet their utility budgets. Uh, there are people, there's a working group forming right now to help people struggling with mental health issues and with homelessness issues. So uh, when we did our listening group, uh, th the homelessness issue and the mental health issue was the top of our list by far. So I'm really hoping that somebody from our congregation will be on that working group. So click that one if you'd like to know more and I'll talk with you about what that means. Finally, One Wake does great training. I've been through their three-day version, but there is a shortened version coming up that's two sessions uh, the, for people that will familiarize you with the basic concept of how to organize people for change. So, One Wake is how we do the service quadrant. One Wake is one of the ways in which we do making the world a better place. And it is very here now small doable with outsized impact because we do it with 50 other congregations. So I really hope you'll click a box. I hope you'll uh, attend some things. All right. Now, while this is an announcement for today, this is the beginning of the lesson. Uh, for the last couple weeks, I have focused our community's attention by giving context around why this kind of thing matters, why this is an important uh, event. Um, and so on Saturday, when we spend three hours, and I hope you'll come, developing the skills that can help us make a difference in our families, developing the skills that can help us make a difference in our community, because it's the skills that will help us challenge this blood sport tribal thing that we've been doing as a culture for so long. 
And so I've been trying to raise our understanding of why this matters for a few weeks. A couple of weeks ago, Cherie spoke about uh, the, the seminar and why it matters. Last week, I did a book report Sunday. I tried on purpose last week to be just a little bit inflammatory because every so often I think it's okay to poke people and see what happens, maybe help us see from a different angle. After last week, trying to be oh, ever so slightly inflammatory, Jen texted me and said, hey, preacher man, <laughs> I think we should get bonus points for not rioting. <laughs> I think we should get bonus points for sitting politely and double bonus points for maybe by the end thinking just a little bit Oh, shit, there might be something to this. Oh, shit, I might need some braver angels. <coughs> Her words, not mine. Although, you know, I'm not disinclined. So today we're going to want to look at the same issue we looked at last week, only look at it from a different perspective and be just a little bit less inflammatory. So, <coughs> on being better than other people, yes, it is tongue-in-cheek, <laughs> but it is also... Not. Because better than other people is a thing. It's an evolutionary adaptation thing. Yet another of those cognitive biases that we talk about regularly. This one's called illusory superiority or the Dunning-Kruger effect. It is the human tendency to overestimate our own ability to overestimate our own virtue, to overestimate our own competence, and to underestimate others, especially if others on, are on the other side of some social divide or another. So today, we're going to look at the religious version of Dunning-Kruger, because in religion, we call it self-righteousness. And while self-righteousness is not limited to religion, Religion is where it really shines. <laughs> Again, it's not a religious thing, it's a human thing, but in religion, we purport to do better. Consequently, when it shows up, it really stands out. So, I am not going to read these texts to you. I want you to know that they're there. If you're going to be up for a minute, so if you want to snap a picture of them and read them later, you're welcome to do that. I could have added many, many more if there was uh, room on the slide, but it's basically they all say that self-righteousness is not going to take you where you want to go. Self-righteousness is not going to create the life that you want to live. And along the way, it's going to be really off-putting. <laughs> and along the way, it's going to be very life-limiting. So imagine one of the Pharisees the people who make up a big part of the story of Jesus that we tell. So this Pharisee is a good guy. They all were good guys. This Pharisee is devout. This Pharisee is very consistent in religious practice. He's studied. He is experienced by all standard measures. He is part of a righteous bunch. But then this Pharisee runs into Jesus. And Jesus has been out and about making quite a stir, calling his religion to account, pointing out the glaring blind spots in his religion, highlighting what everyone who hears has a sense is true, that yes, we are lacking in love. 
Yes, we are lacking in compassion. Yes, we are lacking in forgiveness. He is not wrong, this Jesus character. But also, feel for this Pharisee guy. Because, yeah, I get what you're saying, Jesus. But Jesus, we are going to have to talk about sacred laws. We're going to have to talk about generations of wisdom that have been passed along to us that are built on those sacred laws. We're going to have to talk about the towering teachers of the past who have told us all of these things that we need to be doing that have constituted our religion. So we need to talk about that, Jesus. So he can get what Jesus is saying, but he knows better than most. But wait, history. But wait, doctrine. But wait, concepts. But wait, teachings. And so here's a guy facing some pretty serious internal conflict. So he says to Jesus, what about? What about? Been hearing that a lot lately. This guy's tension is a tension I can feel. I have felt it. Uh, I know what it feels like in this territory because when one of my cherished beliefs, one of my cherished positions is challenged, I know what my brain does. My brain goes, hey, 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 idea, idea, idea. Hey, 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 thought, thought, thought. That's what my brain does. I will automatically go to, what about this quote? And what about that prophet? And what about this venerated teachers? Hey, what about? My brain does what the Pharisee's brain does. I bet yours does, yours does too. So sitting back on this side of history, I wonder. I wonder if uh, I would have been one of the people upon hearing Jesus call the religion to account if I would have been one of the ones who would have embraced the deeper truth. Now, I wonder that because I know my own tendency to do in response to something that challenges my preconceptions, thought, 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 idea, 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 what about, what about, what about. I know I do that because wrapped around all of those things, Every one of those quotes and every one of those teachers and every one of those venerated ideas, all those things that my brain spits up, wrapped in that, all of those good arguments from history and the ancient teachers, there is a cognitive bias. And it's in there working. And it's basically saying to me, look, Jesus, I am better than most. I am good here. Look, braver angels. I am better than most. I'm going out of my way to work toward compassion and kindness and goodness. I actually don't need to buy what you are selling. Now, my brain would never say that directly, uh, because if I did, I would probably recognizing something was amiss. But what my brain does is just dismiss other perspectives without seriously considering them. Because if I did consider them, I might start seeing another way. And if I did start seeing another way, I would have to let go of some stuff that I don't want to let go of. I feel good knowing that I'm in the right. I feel good knowing that I'm one of the good guys. And if I'm this Pharisee guy, I know that we know the right way to worship. 
I know that we know the right way to religion. And because we know that, we know those other people, the Samaritan people, we know that they're inferior. We know that they don't have the inside track to God that we have. We know that. And so, yes, Jesus, I hear love, compassion, forgiveness, justice. I see what you're talking about, Jesus. I don't agree, disagree, but you should know, Jesus, thought, 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 idea, idea, idea. Not take seriously the change that would be required. We don't see when our cognitive biases are affecting us. We don't see the thoughts that we do not allow ourselves to think. We do not see the themes that we do not allow ourselves to seriously consider. Because we don't see how heavily we are weighing in the background all the psycho-emotional benefits that we would lose if we were to actually hear. If we were to hear what the other side says, if we were to begin to understand the way that the other side is thinking, we would end up losing some of that Kruger-Dunning, I am better than. If I embrace what you are saying, other side, if I embrace what you are saying, Jesus, I'm going to lose some kind of standing in my group. And since I'm always blind to my cognitive biases, I don't even see it when it's happening. All I know is that immediately there comes to mind, thought, 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 idea, 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 what about, what about, yeah, but. Now I like to think, and I bet you do too, on this side of history, if I were in the position of the Pharisee, I like to think that I would have chosen love. I like to think that I would have chosen compassion. I like to think that I would have laid down ever so gently the rigidity of the sacred laws that I had inherited. I bet you think you would have done the same. But the funny thing about that is that's exactly what Dunning-Kruger tells us we would be thinking. (laughs) Of course, in the Pharisee's position, we would have chosen the right thing. But given how this is embedded in our brains, how would we ever know if we would have? Because our brains will always tell us we're the kind of people who would do the right thing. We're the kind of people who would choose the right way. Would we? Or are we overestimating our own capacity, overestimating our virtuous choice making? So every religious tradition tells us you just can't see when you drift into self-righteousness. You just can't see when you overestimate your own virtue. It will still destroy you, self-righteousness. I only listed three of the traditions, but all of them have seen this, and all of them have taught us that there's a better way. So this thing that we're calling self-righteousness, it's a thing. This thing, Dunning-Kruger, it's a thing. This thing, this cognitive bias, it's a thing. We do overestimate our virtue. We do overestimate our capacity. We do overestimate what we would do if we were in this other person's position. Now, in our defense, there's good reason why we do it. There's good reason why we carry this cognitive bias in our brains. Because if we overestimate our ability, if we overestimate our capacity, if we overestimate our virtue, we are much more likely to go up against challenges and face them. 
We are much more likely to do so with confidence. We're much more likely to take risks, to be persistent when things get discouraging, to keep going. We are more likely to seize opportunities, more likely to make more discoveries, more likely to enjoy more rewards. Overestimate ourselves and we're more likely to attract other people to our cause. Because you know that confidence is attractive. It attracts allies. We can attract mates. We can have enhanced social standing. There's uh, increased co cooperation that happens when we do this. More mutual protection, more resource sharing, which is all good stuff. So our ancestors who had Dunning-Kruger, who had self-righteousness, they lived more, they died less, they had more babies. And so by now, it's not a bug in our heads. It's a feature. It is part of who we are. So, we are a self-righteous bunch. Nothing we can do about that. We are a Dunning-Kruger bunch. However, however, for all the benefits that moral superiority can afford us, for all the benefits of overestimate, overestimating our capacity can afford us, we do not need to be told what is helpful in one context is actually very harmful in many more contexts. If you wear the mask of confidence, you draw people together. If you wear the mask of superiority, you drive people apart. And it's very difficult to tell the difference when you're the one wearing the mask. It's really hard to know, am I doing confidence or am I doing illusory superiority? And if we look around, lots and lots of people don't see when they slip from one into the other. And that observation of all the people who do this thing ought to be a morality tale for us about us. That could be me. It might not be, as we so commonly assume, them that has the problem we might be suffering the illusion of superiority. We might be seeing ourselves through superiority-colored glasses. In fact, Dunning-Kruger warns us, start thinking to ourselves, ah, look at them caught up in Dunning-Kruger. That very thought is a pretty good indicator that, oh, there might be something to this. So, we are well served to explore this cognitive bias. Because all of the traditions warn us, all kinds of deleterious effects when we get caught up in self-righteousness, it is not gonna build the life that we want. Here's one of the deleterious effects. Self-righteousness keeps us from vulnerability. It keeps us from the awareness of our own vulnerability. It keeps vulnerability hidden from our own awareness. Now that does not mean that we are not vulnerable. We are. It just means that we don't see it. And we don't see our own vulnerability. Which then erodes our own humility. It undercuts genuine connection with other people. In our community, when we work as hard as we do to normalizing, to normalize talking out loud about our shadow sides, when we work so hard after doing that to make sure that we still belong, we still belong with one another and we still belong in this community after we have exposed the dark parts of our lives. 
When we are doing that, what we are doing is challenging Dunning-Kruger. What we are doing is challenging self-righteousness because self-righteousness is a blinding cognitive bias. It blinds us to empathy. It blinds us to other people's pain. It blinds us to the challenges that other people are going through. It blinds us to compassion. It fragments the bonds of families and communities and nations. We stop being in it together. We stop seeing there but for the grace of God. What the ancient wisdom tells us is you don't want to be dominated by this cognitive bias. Also, the echo chambers that have taken over our social discourse lately, they don't start because some company is trying to niche market to a particular audience and so they can sell advertising. They start, the echo chambers, with self-righteousness. Because the first thing that we do is we see our own superiority. The next thing we do is we circle up with other good people like us who also see the same moral superiority. So then all the media outlets have to do is just sell us what we want to hear. Sell us what we are already disposed to listening to. Self-righteousness blinds us. We don't see ourselves caught in the cycle of confirmation bias. We don't see ourselves being limited to just one perspective, to just one viewpoint. So yes, ancient wisdom tells us you do not want the life that can be built on this cognitive bias. Also, self-righteousness pressures us. Pressures us to keep up, keeping up a facade. Because superiority is an illusion. And as all illusions do, it will eventually break down. And when it does break down, we could potentially say, oh, I see, I am part of the human race. But that's not what usually happens. History would tell us what most often happens. We do not abandon our position with a depressing rate of recurrence. What we do person after person after person is we just double down. But now we can only keep up the appearance of our superiority. Now we let people think about us that we are this image that we project. And that just hollows out our lives and makes us empty. How many preachers and how many politicians have we seen rail against some sin only to have it revealed later that was actually theirs? So really the ancient wisdom tells us you do not want the life that can be built with this cognitive bias. But you people are lucky. (laughs) Because next Sunday is club day. (laughs) And you're going to hear many, many places that together we're going to be doing the very things that undercut self-righteousness. You know what the communal practices do? You know what the contemplative and the learning and the serving practices do? Sure enough, they break us out of Dunning-Kruger. They break us out of self-righteousness. They free us. By creating spaces in which we can practice introspection, in which we can practice vulnerability, they help us build the internal courage we need to normalize seeing our own illusions.
They help us build the courage to not have to build up a psychological or emotional facade so that we can actually be our authentic selves. These practices, they help us cultivate empathy. They help us embrace humility. They help us find strength that is in us. We are, every one of us, carriers of the inner light. But build a reality that's built on the reality that is bigger than the facade that our brain biases build for us. These practices that we do together, they help us learn and they help us evolve. They help nurture connections. They help us give and receive support. They help us develop self-awareness and open-mindedness. Meditation does that. By the way, join me starting Wednesday morning, 6.30 on Zoom. Examine the one that we practiced this morning. It frees us from self-righteousness, creating networks of spiritual friends, giving and receiving in a trusting environment, honest feedback with one another. That'll do it. That'll undercut self-righteousness. Learning to listen and be listened to. Learning to be transparent. That'll do it. Exploring a broad spectrum of human wisdom, learning and exposing ourselves to diverse viewpoints and diverse experiences. And you hear all the time, practicing gratitude, acknowledging and appreciating the contribution of others. All of these things serve to undercut self-righteousness. And very specifically, there is a way that we can learn to do justice and love mercy and walk humbly. Not this Saturday, the Saturday after that. This Saturday? What is today? Oh, today's already the third. It is this Saturday. It is this Saturday. My God, I was, I might not have showed up. Huh. That's right. So in Dwelling Divine, may we be countercultural. Uh, go against the tide because the tide is flowing through our culture that we all just surrender to Dunning-Kruger. We all just surrender to a non-religious version of self-righteousness. May we instead be wise and humble and compassionate. May we be truly good. Amen. Well, we've done the offering, uh, unless you haven't, in which case do. So we're going to dismiss the folks online. Uh, and those of you online, uh, we're going to do what are you thinking here in the room. And uh, we invite you to do it as well on Zoom. The link to the Zoom chat is uh, in the notes on YouTube right there. Uh, it's also uh, on the front page of our website. And when you get there, you might be asked for a password, and that password is 1417, 1417. As we dismiss them, if you would, would you please put your hand on your heart, and let's remember as we go that we are, every one of us, carriers of the indwelling divine. Here's what is in us. Love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, what so many times in the tradition we have called the fruit of the indwelling spirit. That's in us. And if you would, extend your other hand to our city. Let's look for opportunities this week to share what's already in us with the people that we live and work and go to school with, looking for opportunities to repair our world, to heal our world. Amen.
God bless you all. You are dismissed. And If these recordings help you move forward on your spiritual journey, we hope you'll take an ownership stake in the community and support the health and well-being of the community. Go to our website, commonthreadchurch.org. The donate button is right there on the top. Thank you.